Hello and welcome back to Management Cast. Today, Professor Alison Meister is back in the hot seat. Hello, Alison. It's great to have you back. Great to be back. Alison is a Professor of Leadership and Organisational Behaviour at IMD. And in our last episode, we discussed the recovery paradox. Today, we'll be covering ways to design your workplace for mental well-being. So, Alison, kick us off. Why is this important? Well, first of all, full-time employees will spend literally one-third of their lives working, right? We spend, I think the statistic is around 90,000 hours of our life at work or working. So this matters to us, and this can shape our whole experience. Our workplace can shape our whole experience of our lives. So the latest Gallup polls show that nearly half of employees at work feel high levels of stress, and put, it's putting the experience of workplace stress at an all-time high, right? As we, we discussed before, that many employees feel like they're on the edge of burnout. So you know, it's no surprise, given the unstated of the world, but we need to do better at making workplaces, you know, places that people like to go to, that they feel they can thrive at and give their best to, because nobody wants to go to work and do a bad job, right? We want to go to work, we want to thrive, we want to work hard, we want to feel like we're making a difference. And actually, if you look at a workplace well-being, if we think of it as the physical, mental, emotional, relational, spiritual health of, work, of employees at work, it really impacts several factors for both the employee and the employer. So productivity, employee retention. So if you have a high workplace well-being, employees are more likely to stay, right? If employees feel stressed out most of their workday, they're more than three times likely to seek employment elsewhere. Healthcare costs, even before the pandemic, 50% of chronic leave, chronic leave was due to mental health issues and stress, stress issues. So the better well-being you have, the, it'll reduce healthcare costs. And finally, I think it's really important to consider reputation. So now we're seeing trends like the companies that prioritize and care and communicate that they care about workplace well-being are seen as more attractive to potential employees, to customers, which boosts their reputation, helps them remain competitive, helps them attract high quality talent. And on the flip side, those who ignore it are also, it's, you know, the world is becoming more transparent. Employers that don't take it seriously can have their reputations destroyed. You might remember that letter that was produced by Goldman Sachs analysts a few years ago, highlighting they called their workplace inhumane and grueling hours, sleep deprivation. And that was just the tip of the iceberg starting this movement. So, Alison, you mentioned a fair bit of research at the beginning of our conversation there. Do you feel that this is something that's becoming more important and why may it be becoming more important at this time? Yes, I, I think it is becoming more and more important. I think workplace well-being was always important, but it's getting a lot more attention now. So you hear about it all the time. You'll see it on the front page of the newspaper. We've seen government organizations pushing it. It's really not far from the tip of people's tongues these days. And I think it's fueled by a number of things. So I think, first of all, changing attitudes and values towards work. So there's, I think there's a growing recognition that people have identities that matter and a lot of identities that matter, not just work. It's not that work isn't important, is that we have a lot of parts of ourselves. And that particularly the younger generations are saying, okay, work is important and it's one part of me, but there's a lot of parts of me and I want to be able to have this multiple identities and I, I don't want to give my life to one organization. 
right? And so it's not that I don't want to work hard. It's just that I don't want work to become me. So we see pushback and we see the younger generation leaving. And this has fueled all generations to kind of question, I call it the collective existential crisis, say, is what I'm doing giving me a sense of meaning and purpose? You know, I'm spending a lot of time at work. Our working hours have gone up since pre-pandemic times, sometimes on average by about two hours per day. We're finding it hard to disconnect. We feel like we're working a lot. So people are asking themselves more and more, even 70% of the C-suite in a latest study by Deloitte is saying, what am I doing with my life? Why am I doing this? Why here? If I'm going to work that hard, why here? And they're searching for options with better well-being. So we see this changing values and attitudes towards work that was really spurred on and fueled and accelerated by the remote work trend and the pandemic, which, as you know from our previous episode, has spurred mental health challenges and exhausted people. And people are just not disconnecting. So it's nice to see more people questioning the why and the what I do and how I can have a better experience of work. And then on the other hand, we actually just see more regulation around this. So some countries and some jurisdictions have actually introduced legislation that's requiring employers to promote workplace well-being. I think in the UK, employers have a legal obligation now to assess and manage workplace risk, and including those related to mental health and well-being. So this duty of care is actually getting put at the organizational side. So we see it both from bottom up, from employees wanting more from their employees, but we also see it top down from regulation. And that has just spurred a wealth of research in this field. So it's quite exciting, actually, to see. You mentioned there the why and the what. Let's drill down into the what a little bit. What does an ideal workplace look like? What is all of this legislation trying to achieve? I think when it comes to workplace well-being, the first thing you need to know is that it's a systemic approach that needs to be taken. So if we think of it a systemic and integrated approach, on the one hand, you have the organizational culture. And I think of the organization as kind of a soup that we are stewed in throughout the day. So we've got organizational culture, and we also have employee well-being, so the individual health, the emotion, emotional, social, physical, spiritual health. And so we've got the employee sits in the organization, and they influence each other, and that's highly connected by leadership. So leader behavior really influences employee mental health. So if we looked at workplace well-being, we would have well-being culture, and we have the individual skills and abilities to actually promote well-being as well. Okay, so that's the what. What about the how? What are the factors here? Yeah, I look at the organizational culture. I look at four core levers that you can influence, which will shape how employees experience well-being. So the first thing is meaningful work. So people want to have a job where they feel they are growing and developing and contributing that when they get out of bed in the morning and go to work, they're making a positive difference and that their work matters, okay? So creating jobs, creating teams with a sense of purpose and meaning really makes a difference for well-being. Number two, we have inclusive climate. So does the team that you work in, does the leader that you work for in the organization that you're in promote a sense of inclusion? Do you feel included or do you feel psychologically unsafe? Do you feel that you don't fit where you are or that who you are isn't accepted and that you can't speak up? Okay, so that kind of feeling a sense of inclusion, respect and belonging is really important. Number three, we have practically speaking, what are the practices that we engage in at work? 
So our workload is the workload level that you have just too high. Like you couldn't possibly finish and feel like you are on top of your workload. We've got flexible work practices. Do you have some autonomy over where and when you can do your work? And do you have a sense of work-life harmony? Are you able to balance, like I mentioned before, those identities that you have in your life? So if you're a parent, for example, do you feel like you are able to be a parent and work at the same time? And then the fourth lever on the organizational side are supportive systems. So quite practically, these are systems and policies at the organizational level to promote well-being. So health provision, equitable practices and policies, financial security. Do you have maternity leave? Do people have access to benefits and health benefits in the organization? So we have those four big broad levers that organizations can work with, which shape individual well-being and help employees lead their best life at work. And of course, there's a lot of other things that you can do to help employees learn to take ownership for their own. But if we're thinking on the organizational culture level, those are our four key categories that I work with organizations on. And all of this sounds like it takes a lot of thinking about, which may also require a little bit of investment. Is designing workplaces for mental well-being something that requires a great deal of investment, capital investment from employers? It can, depending. I think that if you were going to do a whole reshaping, it would require investment in terms of time, mental, physical energy, and fine capital resources. But it doesn't necessarily have to be because you can start with small steps in each of these areas. So there's a few different strategies. For example, if you wanted to start small and kind of work from the ground up, or if, unless, if you don't want to go working from the more kind of strategic level down. But I think, first of all, it starts with the intention. So just doing a little bit of homework to figure out what's happening and building a mindset of curiosity of what's going on here, how can we help, and doing a little mini audit of where you're at and where you want to go. So know what's happening in the organization, what are some of the levers that that are being stretched with people. So you might do some little pulse surveys. You can get things like NPS scores. I've seen organizations do focus surveys just to look at things like overload or burnout or just starting with your engagement survey and say, do we see some issue here? On the well-being side, there's a few little things you can do, like designing spaces. So designing the physical space for including natural light, including access to nature, making sure that the noise profile is okay, giving people space to incorporate and personalize their space a little bit. This can create more relaxing environments. And I think giving people the ability to take breaks, a sense of control and flexibility over their time. We have busy schedules, we have lots to do, but giving people a little bit of sense of control and flexibility can really help them. And most importantly, it starts with just training your leaders in this. So you can start with, if you start with a pilot or a small pool of leaders and giving them the language, the skills, the insights to have better conversations. If you think about it, if you train 15 leaders and each of them have 10 direct reports, you're already cascading down to 150 people. And so I think that you can start with that whole strategic level of auditing, but you can also start by small steps and making change with people who are influencers in the organization. But Alison, regardless of the kind of low or high cost of this, there are some businesses that are going to see building these kind of positive spaces, designing the workplace for the well-being 
attitude as being superfluous or an expense in time and effort that they just don't want to make because of a business case. What would you say to that kind of view? Is this something that can improve productivity, retention? Oh, absolutely. The investment is pays off in spades. Now, for example, the World Economic Forum actually just a few years ago estimated that actually for every $1 spent caring for people with mental health challenges, $4 are returned to the economy. So that's on the macro level. So investing in mental health actually pays off in terms of a lot of the prevention side. But if we think of it in terms of promotion as well, for employers who invest and take care of employee well-being, not only attract better talent, but they retain them. So people want to work there and they want to get up out of bed in the morning and go and have a great work day with you. So on that side, if you think of it in the great resignation era, it's expensive to lose employees. Turnover and burnout in particular are expensive. So if you can prevent people from leaving your organization and burning out of your organization, it is preventing a huge loss on that side. But then also in terms of productivity, if we think about it, if you imagine doing your best innovative, creative work, redesigning the organization for the future, coming up with new innovations and product designs, If you are exhausted, that is nearly impossible. So keeping employees on the edge of burnout is actually stifling innovation and creative thinking because actually you can't innovate because you don't have blood in in your frontal cortex in those creative areas of your brain when you're just in survival mode. So organizations that invest in their employees and really promote a culture of well-being and take care of it not only prevent loss, but they promote future change and innovation and engagement of their employees. So I think there's a number of benefits. And sometimes for just small investments, for small tweaks that you can make through just learning and education and learning the skills of how to be a more connected and a leader that takes care of the well-being of their people. I imagine there are some people listening to this that aren't having the kind of top-down care that maybe they deserve or they think should be being put into place. Do you have any practical advice outside of quote-unquote quiet quitting for people who want to do small things to boost their mood or productivity in the workplace, improve their workplace environment, well-being in their workplace, if they're not getting that support from their employer? Absolutely. And so, like I mentioned, workplace well-being and well-being overall is the culture. And we talked about that. But it also really lies with small tweaks you can do as an individual. Quiet quitting is an interesting one because it's caused so much controversy. And you can actually see it as a positive, as as people taking ownership of their time and saying, "Okay, you get me for this amount of time. But what you don't want as an organization is people sitting there feeling like in their heads, I don't want to be here and I'm quitting. But I think taking steps to empower yourself to work on your own well-being and your resilience are really important. And for example, you can learn to work with your stress. You can learn to understand your energy. We talked about stress and recover. So managing your stress, making strategies, intentional strategies for recovery and understanding what works for you is really important. I think second, social health is really critical for employees at work. So Gallup had a study, I think it was Gallup who um, said that people need a work best friend. It actually increases loyalty and well-being to have a friend at work, at least one friend that you can go to when things are rough, that you can vent to, that you're exhausted, that you can have a laugh with. So making sure that you don't isolate yourself at work, particularly in this remote work age, is really important for your well-being. 
On the spiritual health side, if we think of meaningful work, are there little tweaks you can do to your job to give yourself a sense of meaning? And sometimes at the, at the individual level, that's just exploring what work means to you, what you enjoy to do at work, what gives you that sense of purpose. And if you're not getting it from the organization itself, are there some things you can do to find more meaning and find more purpose at work? It might be taking on a new project. Or, and then if we think about sustainable practices, this is really about ensuring that you understand your values, you understand what's important to you, and you set boundaries around your life so you feel like you're really flourishing in all aspects. So I know that work is really important to, to a lot of us. And so because of that, it can be easy to be overwhelmed by it. So understanding and actually the skill of boundary management and boundary implementation through things like learning to say no or learning to know how much workload you can handle and negotiating for that are little things you can do at the individual level to make sure you can craft out as much well-being as possible. And Alison, I just wanted to finish on this question about the future, the look ahead. Are you optimistic we're moving in the right direction on this towards more positive working environments? Oh, I'm so optimistic in a number of ways. So if you see now, if you look, I'm sure if you just take one look at your phone in the apps, we see a flourishing of apps in this space, of resources, of courses, of podcasts like this one, of wearables. And I think so there's a lot of research and a lot of different tools that people can use to really take ownership and to learn about themselves and their well-being. So on that side, I'm really positive. On the organization side, actually a study came out last year that said that four in five HR leaders report that mental health and well-being are a priority for their organizations and they're trying to redesign their practices to take this into consideration. Now, whether they do it is another thing, but they are intending to do it. And all change starts with the intention and the motivation. So if we see that coming from HR leaders, if we see it's on the CEO agenda of many organizations I work with. So it's not just an, an, a topic for HR, it's a topic for a strategic topic for the entire organization, organizational culture. And so I do see much more movement in this area, both on the research side, but also on the practice side. And I think that's really inspiring. And I just hope we can keep up this momentum. Alison, I think that's a really great place to stop there. I want you to thank you again for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Alison Meister is a professor of leadership and organizational behavior at IMD. Her teaching focuses on mental health, identity and diversity, well-being, and the subject of today's episode, designing your workplace for mental health. See you next time.